John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. Accessed Omnibus Addenda Volume 10. Entry 328.DE0203, certificate number 35435. The de Havilland Beaver. Now, we recently heard, this is an older show, but we recently heard from JB. Uh, What's up, JB? Hey, JB. We must have mentioned, maybe it's just because we mentioned de Havilland Beavers. He wants us to know that Harbor Air in Vancouver, BC, mm-hmm. has rigged up, has put an electric motor in a de Havilland beaver. What? And I... By, I cannot believe it. By their claim, this is the first, I mean, this might be the first electric power plant. This was back in December of last year. But there's an electric engine-powered seaplane now, which has, you know, 30 minutes of flight time with a 30-minute reserve. And because Harbor Air is kind of a, it's a little sure puddle jumper, puddle jumper, maybe Vancouver to Victoria or Vancouver to, I, don't know, I Sydney, think that's what it Sydney is. Sydney to, do they go across the border? Do they go like Sydney on a cordis? I don't know. They might. They might go over to Port Port Angeles. Uh, but they were in some kind of a Harbor Air. Yes, let's really say because they're Canadian. But right. uh, they partnered with a Redmond-based company that does electric propulsion, and there's now a De Havilland Beaver that can stay in the air for. 30 minutes to an hour with no fossil fuels at all. So what they've done is they've taken the beautiful radial engine of a de Havilland beaver and replaced it with a, what? what Folgers crystals. What, well, this isn't my regular coffee. Uh, it looks like a turbo prop, um, but it's obviously an electric airplane engine, which is insane. Blows me away. Do you think it's really quiet the same way you can just run over people with a, so easily with a Prius or a Tesla? It must be really quiet and it must be so elegant to fly in it. I just, I can't imagine they have the power. Well, what if there's not enough power? That's what I'm saying. Like what if it also handles like a Prius? So crazy. It said here that it flew from Vancouver uh, International to, you know, up on the Fraser River in Richmond. So that's not that far. But um, no, I mean, this is designed for very but, short hops. But it's but, just I mean, the beginning. The, the problem is, you know, the, how long can the cord be? <laughs> you know, I, I'm a vintage Vespa enthusiast, and there's a whole movement of Vespa people that are taking cool old Vespas, taking the 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 terrible like 
two-cycle motors out of them and putting electric motors in but them. But then what is a Vespa if it's not that sound? It's exactly right. The Vespa oh. is the motor. It's just a whisper quiet. I mean, it's like a ghost of a Vespa. Do you get these ads for this vintage Porsche 911 that has an electric motor in it? On the one hand, it's super cool. But on the other hand, no, do that with something else. Like, don't, I mean... Well, some of these electric cars, they've actually had to add sound effects because old ladies and, and toddlers are getting run over in, vroom, in, vroom. in, in Albertson's parking lot. But, 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 I am vroom. a car. I am going. <laughs> uh, well, that's cool. Thank you so much, JB, for sending us that. Entry 737.GA0514, certificate number 37350. Love. Now we already put Robert Indiana in the uh, in the omnibus and in the addenda, but we still have more, more? posthumous updates. Yeah, that's how I say more now. <laughs> more? I'm Scooby Doo. I get we I have, get a little bit of flack from Love because I was uh, because I was you know a little bit revealing about myself during that episode, and then I got a bunch of uh, emails from people. Some of them uh, marriage proposals. But also, um, at least people in my immediate circle that listened to the show were like, oh, nice. So you don't know what love is, huh? Well, what about us, your (laughs) friends and family? And I was like, well, I mean, come on. You know, I'm speaking sort of metaphorically. I think the marriage proposals were good, though. How many of them did you accept? All of them. You accepted them all. Blanket accept. I just went down the list. Accept, 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 I mean, that is that is what love is. They say it's not limited. It's not like a... You can't run out of it. It's like a candle. It means never having to say you're sorry. And yeah. so you should be able to ignite all the all the candles you like and, and spread the love. That's right. I am not sorry about accepting 15 marriage proposals. Are you ever going to have your new 15 spouses on the on an addenda show? Huh. Maybe. I'm hoping to have them on a reality show where I get paid millions of dollars for John and his 15 wives. Well, this is now a Robert Indiana-themed podcast because we have several posthumous updates on the— uh, on the beloved pop artist. Okay. Uh, Keith was uh, sad that we did not mention the largest piece of pop art ever produced, which is a Robert Indiana. Oh, what it, is it? In uh, the largest piece of pop art is is the word "love" carved into the surface of the moon by the, by the rover Mars rover is carved it into Mars. No, uh, even worse than Mars, a less hospitable place than Mars, Milwaukee. Oh, what a slur against the great city of Milwaukee. I'm just kidding. I enjoy Milwaukee. In 1977, for whatever reason, the Milwaukee Bucks of the National Basketball Association asked Robert Indiana to repaint the floor of their arena. They were then playing uh, in the Mecca, mm-hmm. that, which, was their, which was their building from the late 60s to Trying the late Trying to picture 80s. this. And it's hard to imagine what they would have in mind. He's not local. To the to them, I mean, he's he you know he's a New York artist, but you know, famously, he's from Indiana, hence the name. Yeah, you'd think maybe the Pacers would want Robert Indiana painting their floor, but the Bucks, I think, probably had an inferiority complex. They're playing against, you know, the Bills. Can't you find a Wisconsin? Can't you find a Wisconsin uh, artist that's going to paint what the Duff beer logo? I think every team should find an artist named for the team. Like the Pacers can have Robert Indiana. The Bulls can have Judy Chicago right. paint a big vagina at center court. It'll be the, – the, the Bucks will have uh, Morris, uh, Wisconsin. I guess there was just no artist named Milwaukee. Uh, so Indiana produced a basketball court-sized 
canvas, which is, it, it's just beautiful. Uh, there's a 30 for 30, there's an ESPN documentary about the floor, which, uh, you know, sh- I guess shortly after he designed it, the Bucks moved across the street to the new Bradley Center, their new arena, and the floor disappeared and later just turned up in an inventory, you know, as gym floor one. And uh, what? They, they, they tore it up? Yeah, but it was still somewhere in storage, I assume in parts. Whoa. But some uh, some fan maxed out his credit card for $20,000 to buy this thing, and it was a Robert Indiana. It was it was this large, beautiful uh, piece of art. <laughs> the size of a basketball court. The size of, I don't know where you display it. And where do you display it? I mean, I guess a Robert Indiana would be a valuable piece of art. Uh, hard to know how how to... I think, the, I think the Bucks have used it for kind of throwback nights. I think they've installed the floor and, and played on it again uh, on special occasions. And it really is lovely. Like, you know, it doesn't look like, you know, because he incorporated words into his art famously, like yeah. the word love. So that, that kind of has a, 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 a graphic look, yeah, which was the name of the, of, the, uh, of the arena. It looks like a Native American blanket. It kind of looks like a Chris Ware design. Oh, it does sort of, yeah. Smartest boy in the world. I don't know. It's, it, it's really lovely. And, uh, and I'm glad it's being seen again. I, ha- I have to assume this was from a time when, for relevance, you wanted to market your look as pop art. Like, uh-huh. like I remember a time in the 70s where, when Stan Lee dictated that Marvel comics would no longer be called comics. They would be a Marvel pop art production or something. So for a very brief time, all Spider-Man comics said a Marvel pop art pr- publication or something. Oh, because, because uh, that, that, that gives it cultural right. currency and, and uh, pop art had, had validated uh, comic book as an art form. Yeah. And I, yeah, you can see the connection with, with sure. Roy Lichtenstein. Maybe uh, maybe Roy Lichtenstein should be invited to do the Lichtensteinian flag soccer field. Oh, right, or something. The flag of Lichtenstein. We also heard again from uh, Rob, our man in Maine. Oh, hey, Rob. Who went by Robert Indiana's last house and reported on the mysterious Miss Havisham goings on there? Right, right. He has two updates for us. One, the house is now in scaffolding, which means. Oh, some kind of maybe restoration. Oh, something's going on. Uh, so, you know, the it's a beautiful old house. So whether it's Robert Indiana related or not, the house is going to do well. He also said he went to a uh, some kind of farmer's market or something in his little main, this little main town and saw somebody selling MAGA, MAGA shirts. Mm-hmm. Do you say MAGA or MAGA? Well, it's, uh, I say MAGA if you're talking about Make America Great Again. Yes. And I say MANGA if you're talking about... <laughs> <I> was- <laughs> I was not talking about manga. Make America n- not great again. Not great again. There you go. <laughs> With a picture of uh, uh, Neon Genesis or something. Uh, but it's in the Robert Indiana Love font. Oh. Can you imagine manga in the? Oh, that seems wrong. He really wanted to go talk to the guy and maybe buy one, and Rob's wife apparently would not permit that Isn't conversation. That's funny. You know, happen. I have a couple of uh, people sent me. Uh, what, uh, what looked like MAGA hats for a while, except they said things like um, make America deep again and make coffee good again. And I have one uh, in Russian that says make America Russian again. But are you really going to wear them? Well, so I, I thought they were hilarious and I wore them until I noticed that a red hat with white writing on it, nobody's reading it. They just don't, they're, they're just glaring at me. And I had to say multiple times, like, read the hat. And even then they were like, well, 
I you're guess. Still, you're still borrowing the iconography of the oppressor. I'm like, it's a, it's a, it's a, I'm, I'm being, I'm being sarcastic and rude. I'm stealing their hat from them, but nobody There's cares. been a spate on, online of people posting a new hat, which is, uh, it's red. And in the MAGA font, it says, made you look, Black Lives Matter. But oh, I nice. think, but I think it has all the same weaknesses, which is from almost every point on earth, it looks like a MAGA hat. And right. then from two feet away or closer, you get a good chuckle. Right. And that's the, that's the problem. It's like, if you, I mean, it's doing the, it's, it's spreading the message of destruction. Uh, nobody's going to come up and read your hat. Right. If I see somebody wearing my hat, my impulse is not to get closer to them and engage them. Right. It's to, it's to think, uh, the world is becoming more and more MAGA all the time. Here's an internet poll on how you pronounce the acronym M-A-G-A. Oh. And it is, appears to be not universal. Like I, I thought maybe I was the only one that, you say wasn't, MAGA? Wasn't sure how to say it. Uh, in fact, 70, only 77, 77% of people said MAGA, but fully 23% of respondents here on Twitter a few years ago thought it was MAGA. I feel like MAGA, uh, the reason I say MAGA is it sounds 10% stupider. But, like MAGA sounds kind of Spanish. So that sounds sort of sophisticated. But the people who believe it are also saying uh, mega apparently, so mega. They're, they're not getting the joke. Well, no, but that's the thing; they are, they are dumb. That's why I say mega because mega. One more Robert Indiana update. Did you see uh, the love derivative artwork that went viral a few weeks ago? No. Uh, Justin pointed us out, pointed us to a Reddit post that went super viral of uh, a man with very long dreadlocks. Okay, strike one. <laughs> no, he's a he's a good looking person of color. I feel like his username is like South Asian guy. So this guy that I assumed was was Caribbean is is maybe all or part Indian. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But his his very long dreads he can shape into letters of the alphabet, and it's a four panel thing of him doing L O V E in the Robert Indiana font, but with his hair. Huh. So he has become a human love sculpture. Roger. And I can't do that with my no. hair. Right no, you now. cannot do that with your hair. I mean, there are e- very few things you could spell with your hair. Even if I had very long white dreads, it would not be the same effect. And I am unlikely to have I mean it might be the same, e- at any time. <laughs> same effect depending on how you feel about dreads, but but yeah, yeah, I don't think it's gonna work quite as well. This has been the latest update from our Robert Indiana themed podcast. Until next month, who knows? Maybe there will be further goings on. In Robert Indiana world, so uh, tune in. Next so don't week. forget to uh, like, comment, fave, and subscribe. Uh, uh, Indian nuns, Indian There's got to be a better word for for Robert Indiana stands. Oh yeah, Indianolians, Indian Indianthems, Indian eaters. Hmm. No, I don't have it. Entry 1120.EX3816. Certificate number 29379. Seasilk. As part of the Seasilk entry, and I don't remember how we got into this topic, we were talking about Steve Jobs' uniform. Yes. If you'll recall. Yes, his turtleneck and um, and dark jeans with a with a his his belt tucked into his shoes. And we kind of implied the whole thing was kind of an off the rack, uh, conspicuous. I don't dress like a rich guy kind of a thing. Right. And, uh, are you telling me it's, it's well, expensive? Josh in Tokyo, uh, contacted us to say that it's true that 
his uniform was off the rack for the most part. The jeans were Levi, just Levi's 501s, which right. is actually what I'm wearing today. Yeah, me too. The shoes were New Balance 991s, which is not what I'm wearing today because I'm not You're not a grandpa. 100 years old. Right. Uh, but the mock turtleneck actually were custom designed for him in the early 80s. Really? By a Japanese fashion designer named Issey Miyake. Oh, Sure, Issey Miyake, one of the the great Japanese clothing. Designers. Oh, you probably you. I didn't know you would have. I don't have Issey any Miyake as a point of reference. I don't have any of the of uh, of those clothes because it's not my style. But he's um, quite quite a famous. So I guess the irony here, as Josh points out, is that he became the template for all these uh, newly branded, moneyed people to wear. Uh, you know, very simple clothes. Right. But in fact, his incarnation of it was not simple at all. He was wearing designer. Well, so are they all. Yes. I mean, that's the that's that's right. where it all comes around. Right? It, these look like Levi's 501s, but look at the pockets. Sure, sure. It's made out of alpaca. Does that mean, you know how the trend is also to like drive a, a Volvo instead of a Maserati or whatever? Right. Like, does that mean they all have to drive like these super weird custom cars that just look like a Volvo at first glance? <laughs> yeah, it's a Volvo with a Ferrari Ferrari engine. It's I mean, a, you know, that was that, that whole Dave Letterman, Paul Newman thing where they would take Volvo station wagons and put huge bored out Chevy motors in them and turn them into like total rockets. I'm just going to put an electric de Havilland Beaver motor in my Volvo and get 30 minutes of power. I bet if you, if however many horsepower that electric motor has to generate to get a Beaver off the water, I bet it would make your car pretty fast. Zero to 60 and like (laughs) zero to 60 feet (laughs) in the air. One second. Josh uh, also pointed out in the very same episode, we mentioned, um, the controversy over Japan and whaling. Oh yeah, uh, and Japan you, and and Norway, Iceland. In Japan, in particular, it's become a political signifier where you know you you whale meat is in the supermarket as kind of a a, oh, a, a concession to a certain kind of own the libs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like own the libs with gross seafood. Yeah, because nobody wants to eat whale meat. There's really not a market, but the Japanese government props it up, and it is kind of a concession to a kind of right-wing, nobody-can-tell-us-what-to-do, this-is-our-heritage kind of uh, Yukio Mishima samurai culture. Right, shark fin soup or r- ground rhino horn. We're not going to let Greenpeace yeah. tell uh, our culture what it can and can't do. Western hippies. But Josh's take is actually that it's um, it's mostly revisionist history, that, that whaling in Japan was never any kind of national part of the national culture or even an important food source. There were there were very limited regions that would do some whaling, but it, it was not until after World War II, due to food shortages, meat shortages, that whaling actually caught on. Oh, interesting. So what you've got here is, I thought, a pretty close analogy to right wing culture in the U.S. and the Civil War statues, right? Which in their minds represent centuries of heritage, but really went up in 1925. Yeah, in fact, there's some accidental 20th century uh, uh, bit of right wing culture that was, you know, doesn't have the kind of historical credence that they're lending to it, right? Uh, so it's like all the the statues of Socrates that went up in the in the uh, 1200s or no i guess the i guess it would have been the 1500s right all of the wonderful sort of reproduction of roman reproduction of greek statuary exactly so if you run out of if you've run out of uh stonewall jackson statues hmm. to yell at 
take a plane to Japan at any time in the future when they will actually let Americans in and go to a supermarket and, uh, I don't know, buy up all the whale and throw it back in the bay. Right. Buy up the whale and sit and gnaw on it with your make Japan great again hat. Or yeah, if you're a conservative, go to, go to, go to Japan and eat really, really gross kind of gamey red, red meat to own the libs. Gross. Don't eat whales. Signed, Omnibus. Entry 1300.TI0209. Certificate number 49600. Thomas, the tank engine. Krista wrote in about the appeal of Thomas in her family. And, uh, you know, we, I think a whole generation of American parents had to withstand years of Thomas because kids are fascinated by them. But she pointed out that uh, neuroatypical kids in particular are interested in Thomas. And right. that was, and I guess she has a son on the spectrum. And uh, she has a theory as to why. Um, her idea is that kind of free-form pretend storytelling is uh, tricky for people with lots of different kinds of autism. Sure. And but the track... Exactly. You know, you and I were pointing out that the kinds of adventures that the Thomas trains have are very limited yeah. by where the track goes and the different kinds of things a train can do, which is basically either go forward, backwards, or stop. Right. Those are the three options. And I guess having that kind of predictability in narrative and also just kind of the complexity of the layout that you can envision and study... Of course. ...is very appealing uh, to people with different kinds of symptoms of autism. Uh, who, do you remember who, the, who find other kinds of storytelling frustrating? Do you remember the kid that appeared on the David Letterman show in the in the mid to late eighties that had the New York subway system memorized? <laughs> he was, you know, it was kind of a parlor trick that that you see people do with kids every once in a while. But this kid was obviously like hyper intelligent, but very socially kind of well, s- seemed on the spectrum. And, yeah, people with autism are, are fascinated with transit and other kinds of systematized diagrams like that but dave sat there and said like okay so i'm at you know 42nd and broadway and i want to go to you know the somewhere in queens and the kid could just tell him the route just instantly um kind of not not just photographic recall but understood the routes and it had really given you know a kind of order to his world that i, re- I remember watching the show then and being like wow you know if i could just if I could see New York City that way, where it was just so clear, like, because he knew the buses too. So I was like, get off the train at this stop and get on the following bus. And See, that's actually useful. Yeah. My, my brother's brother-in-law is on the spectrum and he's obsessed with baseball statistics. Not useful. No. I mean, it's, it's a fun pastime and it's certainly something you could build a community around. Right. Uh, you can go to, go to a ton of games, but, uh. But really, I can't think of any situation where I would have to call him up desperately and want to know, uh, you know, how many doubles Harold Reynolds hit in in 1987. I don't know. I mean, it's the type of thing that's going to win you a trivia contest one day. You have a lifeline. Krista also points out that the narration style of the Thomas shorts is often to show the train with one of its different snap-on faces with a different facial expression. And then to have the narrator, Carlin or or, uh, Ringo or whoever it is, say, uh, you know— Thomas was very frustrated, or you know, oh here's Percy what, was delighted. Here is my interpretation yes. of this emotion. So you can see the emotion oh. and have a narrative tell you, hey, just so you know, this is the emotion. Oh, wonderful! So that could be really uh, helpful for a kid who has a hard time with different kinds of social cues. It's like those signs that you see in doctors' offices where it's, it's like Mr. Point, Yuck or, or no, point to the one that describes how much in pain you are. Mm. 
Like how, what, what is your pain? This one, this one, this one. And it really helps people point to the, to the steam train that Uh expresses how cross you feel right right now. That's right. How cool. Entry 1100.jg0512. Certificate number 37232. Deborah Sampson. So this is one of the most embarrassing things I've ever done on the Omnibus. Our friend who, um, is it uh, Jurgen, our, uh, our uh, Swedish listener? Is he Jürgen. from Sweden? Yes. It's a CH, isn't it? Oh, I'm sorry. Jurgen. It's yes, Jürgen. it's got the two dots on the O. Yeah, I'm not, I don't want to attempt the vowel. He's Scandinavian, right? Am he I? is German, oh, but German. he lives in Scandinavia. Got it. So he's an expat. He's the first one who, because he often does, uh, uh, speaking of systematic knowledge of diagrammic, grammatic things, he's always the one posting. Uh, posting the episode new on, episodes the, on, on the, the Facebook face, On the Futurelings group, yeah. which if you don't follow the Futurelings group, why are you not doing that? He was the first one to catch that I had... Uh, in the Deborah Sampson episode, I got the code wrong. Part of the classification system for omnibus centers, I think we can safely say on an addenda show to people who are paying their own way. Part of the, the certificate number references MPAA film rating certificates. And Yokin is, uh, is the type of person that will immediately try to um, put those codes into the function box to find out both the quote and the and the film. Yes, once somebody cracked the uh cracked the code. And I had said that uh <laughs> I had said that the Deborah Sampson movie code should be certificate number 37232. Right? Which I thought was the Patriot, the uh yes. the Mel Gibson Revolutionary War movie. Let me just say terrible movie. Terrible movie. Have you done it for Friendly Fire? Yes. Uh, our our award-winning podcast, Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast, recently did it. Unfortunately, I was too off. The Patriot is actually MPA certificate number 37230. I had evident, uh, inadvertently used the certificate number for the movie Loser. <laughs> oh, boo. So I implied that Deborah Sampson, the great uh, ceiling-breaking revolutionary, war, revolutionary hero. war hero, was, in fact, a loser. I'm sure Jochen was... But recognized that it, that was not intentional. But because he's German, there is a little bit of a language moment where he is translating things um, from English into German. He might have said, he often feels like, is this some colloquialism that I don't quite understand? Well, I I couldn't figure it out as I stared at it. I don't know if he pointed out that it was a very bad choice of, of movie title, but I had to look and then I couldn't figure out what I had meant. I was trying to change every digit. Oh, I, right. I finally figured out that, oh, the Patriot came out at the same time. And uh, and I mentioned, during that same episode, I mentioned something about Lincoln never having been to law school. Right. Because during kind of a pre-credential era, you could just... Stand out by the woodpile until somebody came along and gave you a job. And gave you a law degree, apparently. Right. I don't know what kind of woodpile that is. Waiting it's a very for cru- that to happen it's for a very, very cruisy woodpile. Can you imagine uh, if someone came along and just said, okay, Ken, John, you're lawyers now. You can practice law. Well, here's the thing. Chris points out that you can still do that. Uh, if you can pass the... You don't have to have a law degree in most states to pass the bar. He has a friend, or an acquaintance, I guess, uh, who's credentials he linked to 
uh, also named Chris, but a different Chris, who's a uh, an attorney who specializes in different kinds of housing justice, I guess, uh, sustainable economies, co-creating post-capitalist, post-white supremacist futures. Oh, sure. The kind of future we would all like to create. That's right. We need lawyers for that. Yes. Well, I mean, briefly. Yeah. Once we've gotten rid of capitalism and white supremacism, right. white supremacy, then we can then kill all the lawyers. The lawyers go right into the pit. That's right. <laughs> but we will briefly need him. And I guess he passed the California bar without going to law school. California at the time had something called, or recently in 2018, I guess California had something called the California Law Office Study Program yeah. that would help you study for the bar without shelling out six figures for law school. My great-grandfather, George Alfred Caldwell Rochester, was a judge here in Seattle and was uh, absolutely like a, a a judge who learned the law on a wagon train. Um, I don't think ever ever passed the bar, but was a... You know, and ended up sitting on the bench here for a for a while. You know, a couple of years ago, my um, my girlfriend that I refer to colloquially as Millennium Girlfriend, uh, she's a lawyer, and she became convinced that I could pass the California bar without going to law school. And she bought me a a copy of the LSAT book, uh, like a used copy of it, and we would sit uh, talk about r- romance. We would sit at night and she would read me LSAT questions and I would try to answer them. And we did it at first as a kind of like, um, you know, a little bit of pillow talk. But Sure, it, because what could be <laughs> what could be more titillating? Torts, Ken. It's all about torts. But then you I just wanted to get into her briefs. As ooh ding. As time went on, I realized that it is not that easy to pass the bar just by shooting from the hip based on <laughs> a you, kind of... Did you assume it was? I just thought, like, the bar exam. Come on. Come on. Uh, send me in the room right now. I'm sure I'll ace it. That uh, is the classic white male confidence of our generation. Yeah. Walking it, downhill to school both ways. It was really tough uh, to answer these questions. And over time, you know, I, I stopped... Uh, it was like the time that my girlfriend said, hey, why don't you just go... Like hit some softballs to me. I love to field softballs, and she ran out in the field with a with her mitt, and I couldn't get a ball to her. I got stage fright, and would throw these balls up and swing and miss. And you know I'm good at softball, but I just got I was on the spot, so freaked out. I couldn't hit a ball, and she's way out in center field, like come on, hit it, hit it to me. Just loved fielding balls, and I couldn't hit it to her. And eventually, I was red in the face. I was so mad. It was kind of like that with these LSAT questions. It happens to every guy like, from time to time, John. I don't want to play this to game anymore. I don't know the answer to these law questions. Well, you and I are both uh, non-lawyers from families of lawyers who were assumed to be lawyers. Why don't we have a podcast where we sit and try to pass the bar, and whoever passes the bar first wins? It becomes a lawyer. Yeah, exactly. I, I would be very interested to sit with an LSAT book with you and just like because, – because what seems like the logical answer is – not if the it was, answer. If it was the logical answer, you wouldn't need lawyers. Anybody could be a lawyer. That's right. Entry 478.AC0754. Certificate number 32596. Fletcherizing. I got my apple back. Oh, boy. We're going to get in trouble. Well, we did not want chewing in that episode. Mark Miles, our editor, just dropped in some chewing sounds. Dropped it in hard. He did leave it going, running for a while. And, yeah. you know, I, I think it really divided the uh, the ASMR omnibus listeners for whom that was their favorite entry and the misophonic ones. 
who I, I'm, st- I'm still getting angry letters from this one particular guy who not only, who just wanted to caution us against doing it and wanted me to know how inconsiderate and inappropriate it, it is to have chewing sounds. Inconsiderate. I mean, people really reacted strongly to the chewing. There were a lot of people on the, on the Futurelings uh, page that were like, I can't listen to this show. Like, tell me when it ends. Mark Miles did not understand the power of close-up chewing sounds, ASMR chewing. I wonder if they were him. Do you think he did the chewing or do you think he found chewing? Is it found chewing? Uh, found what? chewing. Uh, stolen chewing. <laughs> stolen chewing. Anyway. So I had to explain to this guy, I don't know why you're complaining about this. Are you afraid that after 300 podcasts with one chewing-related episode that had eight seconds of chewing, are you afraid this is about to become an Mm all-chewing podcast? From now on. And you have to send angry letters to to make sure that doesn't happen? I'm just going to sit and talk very quietly. That's for our ASMR fans. Make little mouth sounds with my... People are donating for this content, John. You don't want to mess around here. if, If you don't like this, I'll stop doing it. Somebody paid, everybody listening paid at least $5 a month to hear this. <laughs> and some of them are not going to be into it. Uh, two anecdotes about Fletcherizing we received, which is the guy who counted the number of bites. Uh, it took to get to the center of a Tootsie Roll pop? <laughs> no. The number of healthful bites in order to make your poop healthy. Remember? Oh, sure, sure, if sure. If you sure, chew a hundred oh. times, then you're extracting all the nutrition and enjoyment. I remember our episodes. We heard from our cartoonist friend, um, David Chelsea, who recently sent us... I guess it's an episode entry you will not hear for a while, but he sent us his beautiful watercolors. And he, I think that's actually a Patreon bonus of his own Patreon, as he will send beautifully watercolored art. So oh, nice. if you're a fan of David Chelsea's art, you should definitely check out his Patreon. But he sent us his own uh, uh, version of Fletcherizing, which is uh, he eats his bananas frozen. That I've done that. I mean, I've done it at Disneyland, I guess. It's not like super pleasant. Oh, he doesn't dip them in chocolate? That makes them even harder to eat. That's the idea. You can get all the benefits of Fletcherizing by making your food super hard to eat. Because you can't wolf down a banana if it's been right. in the freezer all day. Right. Uh, and, you know, it, it makes him eat more slowly. So, you know, he can't wolf through breakfast and still feel hungry for 20 minutes. You know, he, he, he eats slow enough that he feels full. Frozen banana. Because the banana is frozen. And I think you could do it with any food. I mean, what? Why is he not eating chicken breasts this way? Well, I do it with frozen chicken breasts. Hmm, frozen good. hummus? I, I eat a bowl of ice cream every night, but what I've learned to do is fill the bottom of the bowl with sliced banana and frozen, like, mixed berries. So basically what I'm doing is eating a giant bowl of bananas and berries and then a little bit of ice cream on top. But I still look at it and feel like I'm getting a huge bowl of ice it's cream. It's so virtuous. Uh, but I don't feel like, I feel like you could wolf bananas down all day. It's not, none of us are, none of us are overweight from eating too many bananas. I think he wants to eat slower. He wants the, the, uh, the fullness feeling benefits of Fletcherizing uh, without having to wait for, uh, juice, banana juice to drain out the back of your throat, which was Fletcher's innovation. You should, you should you never have to swallow. You should just chew until the food runs into your stomach of its own accord. Right. Which you... Well, he's a, we're talking about a comic book artist here, so they have all the time in the world to chew. Uh, we also got a story from a listener named Bart. Uh, I think we must have mentioned eating an onion. I think uh, that was one of the things that Fletcher counted is how many chews it took to liquefy onion. Mm. He had a story about being a UPS... Uh, being a, He's a UPS driver, Bart is, so mail truck adjacent. He was a delivery driver in the 90s who one day delivered something to the 
radio comedian, early comedian, Louis Nye, who I'm mm-hmm. not familiar with. Bill Nye's great-grandfather. <laughs> Maybe. A few blocks from the Riviera Country Club, and he, he comes up to Louis Nye's front door with his delivery, and Nye answers the front door eating an onion, mm-hmm. a regular white onion. This is a gag that Lewis and I did well, anytime the doorbell rang. Do you think that's true? He has, yeah. So imagine he has a, a box of, of a bag of white onions sitting by the front door so he can do a bit. Yeah. So that every time, the, so he opens the door and it's some traveling salesman and he's like, can I help you? Bart certainly believes that he just happened to come across Nye chewing an onion yeah. in some Grandpa Simpson style of the time fashion. Uh, Bart also wants you to know that you mentioned rimless glasses as not having existed in the 40s. No, wait a minute. Did I say that? I don't know. Or I, at least, at least uh, they t- tended to be a more modern fashion, maybe? Well, I don't know about that because I have lots of glasses that belong to my grandfathers that are rimless and from before the 40s. That's so what Bar- Bar wants to say. He has a photo of his dad from World War II era wearing rimless glasses while in the Army Air Corps. I feel like Bart may have misheard what I said, but I, I don't think either you... Or I are going to go back and listen to that episode of Omnibus to determine this. Bart told us two stories, and you uh, found fault with both of them. Well, but the one where where Bart says that I said that there weren't a certain kind of glasses before a certain time, that's not a thing that I would have made a mistake about. Good for you, John. Speak your truth. I feel like Bart made a mistake. Speak your truth. Entry 566.EZ1321, certificate number 34366. Hanky Coats. I guess this is only mildly related to Hanky Coats, but, uh, you know, for some reason, talking about the the gender roles implied in that episode, or lack thereof, uh, we had a couple listeners volunteer modern... Uh, non-binary workarounds. Oh, uh, interesting. I think when we mentioned when we talked about square dancing, for example, we talked about how different instructions for guys and gals might be problematic in a time with more than two genders. And Ian on Facebook said, reported from the, the square uh, dancing world that, that it is no longer necessarily gendered in that way. That instead of calls to guys and gals, usually people just divide up into two uh, groups, however they want. And then the caller will refer to left and right. Well, just two fun names. You know how like the 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 um, the restrooms at seafood restaurants might be oh cl- lobsters bo- and clams. Yeah, pr- oh, I, whoa, whoa, well, not that's that not one. what I meant. <laughs> Snails and cl- oh wait, bo- no, uh, boys and gulls. Uh, oh, there you but, go. You know, but mollusks and crustaceans or whatever. It's that kind of a thing. Sure. And so I think the caller will say. Um, uh, I, you know, I don't know, uh, trout and perch or something, or, uh, I mean, you wouldn't say rams and yuks because they're not gendered, but, you know, you can right. just say uh, uh, suns and moons or, or whatever it is, and that works. And Aaliyah had a similar update for us on Icelandic names. I, thought, well, I think I haven't done this in an Addenda episode yet. You know, Iceland, uh, in Iceland, the patronymics, you don't have your own... Last names essentially don't exist in Iceland, is what I'm saying. Right. You do not inherit your parents' last names. You become Bjorn's son if you're the son of Bjorn, or Bjorn's daughter if you're the daughter right. of Bjorn. So that system obviously implies that you're either a son or a daughter, and it doesn't really leave a place for non-binary Icelanders. And Aaliyah says there is a new suffix now, 
which is burr, which is their word for child. Oh, biscuits and gravy, by the way. That's the example that somebody used instead of ladies and gents. It's some pair like that of two things that go together. So the square dance caller would say, biscuits and gravy, you know. Uh-huh. Um, but in Iceland now, you can use burr instead of son or dotter if you want to have a, a non-gendered surname or, or a nearest equivalent thereof. But we also got an interesting note. Uh, we mentioned asexual culture in the Hanky Codes entry. And I made a joke about how if you're asexual, you, you don't need a, um, you know, you don't need a hanky code because you're not looking to meet anyone anyway, right? Right. And I was corrected by Scott, who pointed out that not all asexual people are aromantic. Right. That uh, they're two completely different uh, yes. identities. And so, and I guess in my, you know, that dumb joke kind of actually uh, got into a very sensitive area for asexual people. Although, do asexual people have sensitive areas? Yes, they do. Just not erogenous ones. They have, they're very sensitive. They're just not, um, there's a difference between, I guess, even erogeny and sexuality. Do you think that's true? Yes, I guess it yeah, would be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he pointed out that uh, there's, it's a live issue how welcome asexual people are in different LGBT communities. Right. And therefore, you know, to imply that, you know, there's no seat at the bar for, for these people looking to meet. Actually, it is kind of a uh, an area of ongoing concern for that. So I did not mean to imply that, uh, you know, ace folks should be kicked out of queer spaces. No, I know you didn't mean that. And hopefully no. all well-meaning or all, all, all uh, futurelings of goodwill know that we are not intentionally being exclusionary. He also Ever. pointed out that there is an equivalent of hanky codes for asexual people. What has caught on is a black ring uh, on the middle finger, I think. Uh, and uh, and there, the only problem with this is that it's uh, the same, <laughs> the same uh, symbol has been adopted by swingers. Yeah. Well, the ring on the middle finger is a is kind of a it's been adopted by a lot of people over the years. It was also a form of lesbian signaling to wear just a ring on your middle finger. Um and this was prior to there being like like color coding of it. And is that on your wedding ring hand? It's um it, well it was on your middle finger or your thumb and I think you could probably the wedding finger hand. Get away with either hand? Cuz I guess Scott's point is that for in asexual communities it's usually the right hand, the right middle finger. Um, but all of these things, hanky, any aspect of hanky code is just a, really a conversation starter. Cause there's sometimes just going to be somebody that had a yellow hanky in their right back pocket and had no idea of the symbolism, right? But of the, of the two groups, you do not want to overlap, um, meetup coding. I would say asexual folks and swingers, right. that's, that's the most confusing Two groups. Well, particularly if you sidle up next to one another in a bar and try try talking in a coded language, like, "Hey, what are you? Uh, what are you into? Oh, you know. Do you want to meet my spouse? <laughs> um, I don't know. Maybe. I heard from uh, I heard pri- privately from some of our um, some of our lesbian listeners that I missed the opportunity to talk about uh, some lesbian signaling that. Um, that has its own language. And there's actually a, like a, a lesbian hanky code, which is 
which is different because there's not such an emphasis on penetrative sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, For the, the carabiner is a, a, for, has been for a long time a, a, a lesbian signal out in the world, a woman with a carabiner on her belt, with keys or not. Definitely when I was a young uh, guy living within a queer space, the key ring, a woman wearing a key ring on her jeans, it was a lesbian flag. And then that evolved to be a carabiner. And it's a, you know, it's a very subtle thing. But Didn't you if, mention this in the show? I thought you didn't. Did I? Maybe. Otherwise, I'm very just. I know more about lesbian carabiners than I thought I did. Yeah, maybe I did mention it in the show. I, I, I've, I've been in conversation. Uh, like, um, I mean, every community has its way of signaling. Um, the flannel shirt was a way of. I uh, know you look down. And I'm you're wearing. wearing I'm wearing one right now. <laughs> the flannel shirt. How am I going to uh, keep the lesbians off me? Was a way for for women to kind of like very quietly signal to one another. Um, nowadays, who I don't think you can. I think grunge ruined that for everybody. Flannel shirt doesn't signify anything but a love of Nirvana. Well, I think you and I should call upon all of our listeners who are both, who are not both, who are either asexual or swingers to get together and uh, hash out some kind of treaty on what kind of ring, what color ring you're going to wear, where. Because it's going to be easier for both of you if you guys can figure this out. Yeah. What, what, do swingers need a way? I guess they do. Asexual people, I think, should be seeded the space just because, although asexual people have less of a need to signal to one another than they do to signal to sexual people to leave them alone. Yes, exactly. So maybe you just want a t-shirt. You don't need a coat at all. Like typically the thing about a coat is you're hiding your predilection from outsiders. But here you really just want a shirt. Yeah, that asexual says, people say, that says, says hey, nope. Uh, uh, we can play Catan, but uh, please do not hit on me. Yeah, don't hit on me, please. Thank you. Whereas, whereas swingers need like five or six different codes. Like, hey, hi there. Ooh, hello. <laughs> hey there. Nudge, nudge. How's it going? More. Yeah. Is your wife a goer? Entry 931.JN0905. Certificate number 24473. The Phoebus Cartel. This was the uh, light bulb, evil light bulb consortium. Yep. Uh, Maxie, a Dutch listener, despite all the terrible things we say about the Dutch, uh, wrote in from uh, to tell us about the city where he went to gra- grad school, Eindhoven. Oh, I love Eindhoven. I've never been to Eindhoven. I love all Dutch towns, frankly, even the bad ones. This is the home of Phillips, mm-hmm. which I didn't know. And, you, and, and they have a big, big Phillips plant there. And that, it's now the fifth largest city in the Netherlands, which where it was just a tiny little village at the end of the 19th century when Phillips moved in. And I guess according to local legend, uh, Phillips located in this obscure little village because um, of the way ma- light bulbs were manufactured at the time. According to the legend, and this can't possibly be true, the final step of making a light bulb at the time required a worker to manually glue the two halves of a bulb together. And then hold them in place without moving for a few minutes. Whoa. Really? Uh, is that really how you would make a light bulb? No, right? No, you would blow them. Wouldn't they be blown glass? Maybe he's talking first? about the metal socket and the glass thing. Maybe because oh, those would be because there's no way you would think that a light bulb is two pieces of glass sutured together, right? I can't imagine. But, but I mean, I guess that's how 
I mean, bottles have seams in them, right? Aren't they made out of two pieces that are seamed together? I don't know if they are. Unblown glass? Anyway, according to the story, the the steadiest hands were found to be teenage girls, which again, we're supposed to take as red, that teenage girls have the steadiest hands. True in my experience. I mean, teenage boys do not. That's my experience. No, no, no. Uh, Very very active. And Eindhoven apparently had a surplus of unemployed underemployed teenage girls. So there's actually a factor, uh, a statue in town. And, uh, Maxie sent me a picture of a, of a teenage girl, very carefully pressing the two halves of a light bulb together. Unfortunately, the story says Maxie is totally bogus. Oh, the only reason why Phillips moved to Eindhoven is because let us on. There was an old factory building available for sale cheap and the town was in the middle of uh, undeveloped farmland, so there was lots of room to grow. You know, Eindhoven played a pretty decisive role in Operation Market Garden in World, World War, War II. II. Operation Market Garden was the uh, incident where Bernard Montgomery overextended um, his idea that they were going to get to Berlin by Christmas, and uh, and they got they parachuted a bunch of people in there, and then they couldn't get enough supplies to them, and. But they liberated Eindhoven during this during this uh, period. But then the whole operation was a big disaster. Uh, Maxi points out that it's one of the few because the Phyllis factory is located there. It's one of the few cities that was bombed by both sides yeah. during the war because the the Germans bombed it heavily when trying to take the Netherlands, and then the Royal Air Force bombed it uh, trying to take it back. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie A Bridge Too Far or know the the story of A Bridge Too Far. I remember the story. But the bridge that was too far was the bridge at Arnhem. Uh, the bridges at Nijmegen and Eindhoven were bridges that were close enough. So Eindhoven would be the subject of a movie called The Bridge That Was Just Far Enough. Yeah, the bridge that was close enough to Antwerp that it was that it would have been easy to get and hold. It was Arnhem that threw the threw the whole plan to. They should have just gone to Sertogenbosch and hung out. Frankly, it's a nice town. Good job, Eindhoven, and to some degree, Sertogenbosch, apparently. Uh, well, and Nijmegen also. Fine. You know, that was a fine bridge. Good job, Get everybody. to Nijmegen and stay, but no. But not, not Arnhem. Had to go all the way to Arnhem. Entry 1306 NU0774. Certificate number 34596. The Tibetan... Memory trick. This is the weird counting thing, incantation. One right. hen, two ducks, three squawking geese. Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis. And we heard from a lot of people who, uh, for whom it brought back fond memories of their dads, mostly. Who, really? Who learned it at summer camp uh, or something. Uh, so, so just following kind of the oral folklore of this weird mid-century thing. Uh, Zan had a follow-up question. Uh, Is it Zan, Z-A-N or X-A-N? X-A-N. And Zan's father had a similar thing that he would do, I guess, he from a Jewish family on Long Island, and he he would sometimes start this weird recitation that starts, I was down on the corner of Turdy Turd and Turd. There were these Tweety Boyds, a Choipin and Boypin and Eaton Williams. And it's this very long thing that he'll just he can recite by heart and he'll drop it. And now she can, or they can as well as Zan can. That the Zan's Zan dad can could, dance. <laughs> the Zan could just drop into, the Zan's dad could just drop into at the drop of a hat. A Tweety Boyd. And uh, Zan thought maybe our show was like the closest thing to an explanation that they had yet heard as to what this weird thing their dad said might mean. Right. So if anybody has heard that 
I was down on the corner of Turdy Turd recitation, and you have any idea what I might mean, please let us know care of Omnibus, and we will pass it along to Zan. It seems very much like a cat skills, borched belt kind of sense of humor. And maybe related to the accent? Like, is it, yeah. some, is it some kind of radio warm-up for somebody who has to either do or drop a New York accent? Yeah, it would have to be, right? A neat Billy Boaten, Boaten, Doten, Bebop, and Itinary. Uh, Vincent uh, says that his dad learned it at uh, summer camp in Wisconsin. And he also said, he's a, he's a Patreon supporter, thanks, Vincent, who really enjoyed the episode on the Kamehameha colonists. Mm-hmm. And as a musician, it inspired him to write a song about it called Under a Jarvis Moon, which was the name of the documentary made about the the Kamehameha colonists. He uh, threatens to do a, a Sufjan Stevens thing and write a song about every omnibus entry. Worked out for Sufjan Stevens. Yeah, he would, he would be able to quit after two. After <laughs> turn. Although I would hold that the Sufjan record, Carrie and Lowell, actually should count as the Oregon record. Oh, nice. Because it's very kind of Lane County-centric. Um, so maybe... We should give Sufian credit for You're a, a Sufian apologist. I really am. Um, and it would be much harder to do a song for every omnibus entry because there's not two U.S. states every week. Right. You'd have to get to 50 and then branch out to Canadian provinces and Mexican uh, – are they provinces? What are they called? They're states. In Mexico? Mexico They're has states. States, right. Estados. And, uh, and then, I guess, European countries. and Swiss cantons. I guess German, uh, all the sort of little German states. Japanese prefectures. and whatnot. Uh, Or you could just do the first 50 omnibus entries, write songs about each one. Right, and then uh, be done. And then say that's Sufjan equivalent. Anyway, uh, here's a little little snatch of uh, Vincent's song about, Vincent's song about the Kamehameha colonists. enjoyed that very much yeah good good old-fashioned indie rock is what that is if you write songs about other omnibus entries we would love to hear them we're already getting a, a watercolor postcard about many entries so what if we had an a watercolor postcard and an indie rock song about every omnibus yeah sung sort of sotto voce with uh, with some double tracking and a lot of a lot of delay that's our that's a new omnibus vibe i'm very into it and it kind of goes with the watercolors actually a little bit uh wisp, wispy and delicate yeah we don't like bold lines here. We have enough bold lines in our shows. Entry 1165AM0408. Certificate number 39656. Sister Cities. We mentioned the relationship, the venerable relationship between Toledo, Spain, and Toledo, Ohio, during we, the show. We got a lot of feedback on this episode. A lot of people that were kind of offended that we that we didn't appreciate how wonderful the Sister Cities program was. Oh, I don't feel like we were putting down Sister Cities, were we? Well, I didn't think so either, but... Uh, but well, what, we, we did kind of talk about it as a, as a bit of a relic. Yeah, an anachronism, and people were like, no, it brings people together. I don't know. Maybe they just send that kind of tweet to me. Well, like, maybe we also... 
I think on Twitter I, I referred to it as kind of a, a, a memory of the, of the post-war era or something. Right. Um, and I made it sound like it was old-timey. But people really did defend their sister cities, their relationship with their city's sister cities as, uh, as uh, not arbitrary at all, but um, meaningful and cultural exchanges they knew about. So that was nice. Um, we heard from Chuck, from Chuck from Toledo points out that uh, the Toledo relationship with Toledo is live enough that the newspaper there is still called the Toledo Blade. Oh, really? Where his aunt worked. And of the, course. And the paper is named for the swords that were, that were handed over. And uh, they are still on display. I don't know if this is still true. But uh, when his aunt worked there when he was young, the uh, newspaper actually displayed the, the Spanish steel that had come over. Isn't that cool? So, yeah, I've never, it might be the only American newspaper named for a weapon. Well, I always assumed it was named for a very rakish young gay man. Like, uh, like Klinger. Mm-hmm. I, th- I thought it was Oh, there. right, Klinger. I mean, Klinger's straight, but he cross-dresses. Right. Uh, well, not that rakish either. He's not that rakish. He's pretty frumpy. His, his nose is at a rakish angle. Yeah. I guess the Sacramento Bee is kind of a weapon. If you, if you Weaponized bees. If you release... Africanized bees on your enemies. I mean, the Seattle Post Intelligencer was uh, about being post intelligent. <laughs> we also heard from uh, Rebecca, a frequent correspondent, who pointed out. I think I mentioned by way of passing. Uh, we, I was talking about how I, I like it when corporations give anonymous gifts. What and, did, What did that mean? What did you mean, anonymous? Oh, gift? I just don't like it when you go to the, a play or an oh. opera house and it says like, and the Gates Foundation. Agreed. agreed. I like it when it's like five hundred thousand dollars from anonymous. anonymous. That's that's a real power move. Agreed. In my opinion, and uh, she pointed out that uh, the great Jewish philosopher Maimonides, uh, in the medieval era, listed different levels of uh, of tzedakah or, or charitable giving, um, where the lowest form is a grudging donation. And you know, and then it moves on up from a small but cheerful donation. Then a little better than that is giving directly to the poor after being asked. Five, predictably, giving directly to the poor with being asked. Four, donations where the recipient's aware of your identity, but you don't know the donor doesn't know who the recipient is. Okay. Then three is the reverse of that. Donations where the donor knows where it's being given, but the recipient doesn't know. That's even higher. But there are two things even that, and that was my gold standard, but there are two things even higher than that per Maimonides, to get assistance in such a way that the giver and recipient are unknown to each other. Uh-huh. Although like a, like, tr- tricky, to, tricky to imagine how that would be administered. Yeah. You, you need some kind of middleman, I guess. You do, yeah. You need, a, need an arbiter. Uh, but the highest form is uh, to help sustain a person before they become impoverished by offering a gift or loan in a dignified manner, basically a fish for a lifetime thing, such that the need never even arises. If you were really good at, at your nonprofit, mm-hmm. it would be a nonprofit in an area where there were no problem, according to the Maimonides, because you would have already addressed the root causes so quickly sure. that there was no social ill at all. Sure. What are you doing? What are you doing sitting around, sitting on your hands? And I pointed out that um, somebody online with a MAGA hat gave me a hard time in that episode for saying that I had given anonymously to a video store here I like. And I didn't name the I didn't name the charity. But his point was that to say you're giving anonymous anonymously and then announce it in your podcast. I see. To announce your anonymous gift in your podcast. Well, uh, is, are you saying he was a mega hat avatar? Yes. I see. Okay. But uh, but a listener of the show. Apparently. Well, right on. And a Canadian one? What, oh yeah. What's wrong with a Canadian in a mega hat? Like what there's a lot of things going wrong on some level. No, I mean I think it might be hilarious. Like make America great again. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I guess you guys need it. Yeah. Uh, so in in his point of view, I had I would have dropped several steps on the Maimonides scale by announcing my anonymous gift right. on a podcast, which has a larger audience than anybody who would have seen my gift otherwise. And that's not wrong, honestly. Entry 388.JL0112, certificate number 27812. Dutch elm disease. Here we are talking smack about the Dutch again. Well, we, as we said in the show... The Dutch elm disease was not their fault. Right. The elms aren't Dutch. Misnamed. The disease isn't even Dutch. We heard immediately from our friend uh, Buzzy Cohen of Jeopardy fame. Do you remember his kibitzing about the Dutch elm disease? Uh, he texted well, us to be like, hey, do you, want, do you want me to correct you? Yeah, this was, a, this was a thing where Buzzy doesn't even really listen to the show. <laughs> but but he had all notes. of a sudden he had notes, right? <laughs> we had said, uh, I guess he didn't like the implication that the great American forest that the first settlers found were virgin in any way. Right. Because I guess there's now a body of... Re- Am I getting this right? There's now a body of research showing that the the native tribes of the eastern United States actually tended the forests pretty carefully. Cultivated. It, yeah, in the same way that we would have, you know, cultivated agriculture, in the same way that, you know, we would have cared for fields and made sure that the right plants were growing and the soil was good for next year or whatever. They were doing the same thing to encourage tree growth and so forth. So what what appeared to be some kind of pristine uh natural natural world. yeah natural world was actually the result of careful work. Yeah, I by the I, tribes. I buy that. Well, nobody's asking you what you think. I mean, Buzzy wanted to correct us. Uh, I don't buy a, a thing that Buzzy says, but I but that sounds like a plausible thing. I looked up the articles and oh. th- this is actually a new a new area of scholarship. Uh making that point. And I think Buzzy had had a professor who made the point. But we also got, you know, in contrast with Buzzy, we also got an email from an actual expert. Oh, <laughs> that's always nice to hear. Uh, we heard from Sam Kavanaugh, who uh, worked, used to work for a um, an organization that focused on urban forests, urban yes. tree growth. Good. And it was founded in, the, you approve? I do. That, I, I'm a big fan of urban forests. That'll be a huge relief for Sam in his past job. Uh, High five, Sam. I guess as a result of the Dutch elm disease that swept through the Twin Cities elm trees in the 70s, uh, this organization was founded. And he says, we did a very good job covering the subject. Oh. Take that, Buzzy. Oh, nicely done. One thing he wanted to add is that um, after, when all the elm trees were wiped away by Dutch elm disease in the 70s, many cities planted ash trees instead, which seemed like the perfect choice because they're so... Solid, they're good shade, they, they would grow super fast, so you'd replace your elm cover very quickly. Until the ash borer arrived. And that was the whole problem. Like, they were, at the time they planted them, there was no known diseases. And then, now, 40 years on, we're talking about the emerald ash borer, which arrived shortly thereafter. And, you know, Minnesota now has a billion ash trees that's, that are at risk. Oh, boy. Um, and unlike us, he gave action items. Here are tips that you can do to help prevent... Oh, good. ...to help protect urban forests... And keep trees safe from these invasive species. Number one, don't transport firewood. I wouldn't have thought. Sure, it makes sense to me though. It there's does. a lot of skanky but stuff in firewood. There's going to be beetles in there, and if you know, if you make your fire, if you make your s'mores fast enough, you'll burn up all the beetles. Right. But what if they get out? What if you leave it sitting around outside That's for an like, hour? Like, or, or in my case, in the case of my backyard, for years. Uh-huh. Uh, learn to identify and report invasives. 
Right. So if you learn what the what the troublesome invasive species are in your area and keep an eye out so you can let a parks department know. So I just had a uh, a naturalist come by my uh, my property, which includes a, a ravine that's quite overgrown. And we walked around the property together and she identified four different invasive species that I w- was not aware of and told me sort of in order which ones were the which ones were the worst. And there's one of them, an Italian mug warp or something like that. A little racist. That uh that she said when you when you take this out of here, you need to dig it up with a like a a foot wide circle around it and throw all of the dirt in the garbage. Because even the dirt is contaminated the, with with uh with marinara sauce? Because this thing sends out these tiny little tendrils that you can't even see. That you can't see. And so if you break them off, they'll just sprout again. And so I I'm going all around my property marking these little invasive things that were probably imported as a as an ornamental, but now have have gone wild. Well you are ahead of the curve. Like Sam's next tip was choose your yard trees carefully. Yes. Uh, you can volunteer on uh, for forest causes. And then he says the most important things you can do are often at the municipal level. For example... Um, Vote out your uh, Republican congresspeople. <laughs> uh, you know, cities that are doing... Cities that are making bad decisions. You oh, know, like you, Seattle? <laughs> well, I don't In know, every regard? I don't know if they're making tree-related <laughs> bad decisions. Oh, no, probably we're good on trees. Bad on everything else. Uh, but like, you know, sh- you know, be active at city council meetings. And uh, if people are doing ding dong tree policy, for example, replacing all the ash trees with maple trees is very common right now in, uh, in the Midwest. But those are probably the next victims. Right. Um, because there are dozens of different maple species that have their own pests. And now that we've got all these different maple species, they can jump to the other ones that have less resistance. So maples are now in danger as well. Having sat through several city council meetings, let me just say that there's nothing a city council likes more than someone coming and yelling about tree uh, pests. I have a question that's more of a comment. (laughs) Sir, this is not the meeting about – this meeting is about law enforcement. Uh, And I guess the big mistake that cities make is they will plant an entire block with only one species. That's what it is, right? Because it looks really good. You you want that kind of cookie-cutter – urban forest look of a, of a row of identical trees. But that just makes it easier for the invasive thing to jump, 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 jump. Right. And now it's miles across The town. problem of monoculture of any kind. Yes. So div- I guess the most important thing that cities can do is just diversify the urban forest. And diversify in every way. Diversity, diversity, diversity. That's our motto here at Omnibus. But we use three different words for it. We don't say diversity twice. We say diversity, diversité, and... Multiculturalism. <laughs> <laughs> but really, we, one thing we like about the show is when we hear from actual experts. Because, you know, you and I will spend 45 minutes reading up on something and then do an hour and a half show about it. <laughs> there are so many actual experts out there, uh, and I love that they listen to the Omnibus. Entry 1404.EC0410. Certificate number 33008. Vesna Vulovich. Well, let's start there. Uh, the pronunciation. We, I think we were talking about how CH sounds are very tricky in yeah. Balkan languages. Vulovich. Uh, well, we... Vesna Vulovich. I think we disagreed on how to say it, and uh, Allison uh, wrote in uh, after taking some college-level... BCS, which you'd think would be both championship series, but is actually Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian. 
So, but she's not Bosnian, Croatian, or Serbian. She just took some college classes on it. So she's got, she's got a semester more than us. John. Okay, that's right. All right. So, what does she say? She says pronunciation is wild of Serbo-Croatian consonants because there are three different C's and a K and two different CH sounds, uh-huh. and one of them you're supposed to hold your tongue the same way as you do a Y. So hold your tongue like you're going to say Y, but then say CH. Yeah. She sent us a YouTube. She sent us a YouTube video. Oh, okay. So what happens when we put a V above this letter? That's how we get ch sound. Serbo-Croatian Bosnian. But why is it Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian? They're just putting Serbians last to, to get the They're, revenge everybody's from, from Milosevic. Revenge on the Serbians. The Serbs have it coming. So if you're interested, it's easy to find YouTube videos that will improve on our Serbo-Croatian pronunciation. But how is, is Vesna Volovic Volovic pronounced? Uh, I think we were pretty close. Yeah, it's uh, it's a ch sound at the yeah. end of the word. Volivich. I think. I think, but I think it might be the y ch sound. Uh, in the episode, I I talked about how you don't walk away from plane crashes, and I was corrected. Uh, I think actually, most small plane crashes are survived. Oh, how how curious! It's just you you know you hear about the the catastrophic ones, um, but the, I guess the ones in which. The ones in which the pilot walks away are, in fact, more common. But they're but they're probably counting plane crashes where, like, a tire comes yeah, off exactly. on the runway. Yeah, or what's a crash right? exactly? Um, Although I learned the other day, a lot of people replied. I was wondering, to the story uh, I, about my uncle. Yes, and um, people went and found the actual news account of the crash. And they were they were uncle splaining to you. They were uncle splaining because you know the story as it been told to me for the last forty years had my uncle as the lone survivor, but in fact something like fifteen kids survived the crash. A lot of people died, but, um, but so, so others you, got out. So your your grandpa was or your uncle was kind of doing the Mark Wahlberg "I Survived 9-11 kind of a thing. The thing is that my uncle Jack only actually told me the story once. When I was a kid, it may have been that I made it a little better, made it a little better over the course of the years until he was the only one that survived. And I don't remember having inflated the story. You know, my dad told all kinds of stories about World War II, where he shot down a Japanese zero with a, with a sidearm. And then thinking back on it, you know, one of those is like, it's definitely a plot he got from a movie. <laughs> Uh, or or one was a story that actually happened to somebody for real, and they were a hero for it. And after I shot the plane, Gary Cooper came and joined me. That's right. So it, it runs in the family. Max sent us a story about his grandfather, who had survived three plane crashes in his life, oh. according to family lore. Uh, he found a newspaper clipping from Boswell, Indiana, describing a plane a flight where his grandfather was a member of the Indiana governor's entourage. And the plane crashed over water, killing some people aboard. But his grandfather survived and swam back to shore. And uh, apparently he was hit and damaged three times during the war as a B-17 pilot. And he was also the sole survivor of a commercial flight, if, if family lore is to be believed. And that's not conflating the, the Indiana crash. Um, but his family loves telling the story that his grandpa apparently survived three different... Uh, plane crashes, and that's if you only count the three World War II incidents uh, 
as one crash. Wow. So yeah, that kind of puts your uncle to shame. It does. Although I think that, um, I don't know if I talked about him on the show, but uh, Alaska Bush pilot Don Sheldon, um, I think... He has come up, I think. I think Don Sheldon beats everyone's record for number of plane crashes, because I feel like... I feel like Don Sheldon crashed a plane every couple of weeks. Well, maybe that's what's inflating the stats for people walking away from plane crashes. Is it's, it's, it's one guy walking away from all Don of them. It's even, it's, it's even crashes he wasn't in. In the end, Don Sheldon did not live forever. Entry 749.2S1114. Certificate number 35752. Omnibus listeners should have that certificate number and entry number memorized because we're talking about mail trucks. Uh, when this is not a Robert Indiana podcast, it is a mail trucks podcast. Correct. Uh, and I, I, this was irresistible to me. Our friend Mark, who uh, paints us the lovely postcards, including a mail truck one, uh, had a fact about the United States Postal Service I did not know. You know, the current, we've talked about the current logo before, how I, I used to see, as a kid, I used to see the old eagle as a cardinal. I thought the eagle's head was a yeah. was a bird's beak. Yeah. The new one is much cooler and sleeker, but it does so with a series of uh, curves and um, kind of aerodynamically shaped lines to make the eagle, the, the so-called sonic eagle, to give it more motion and flight. Uh-huh. And uh, Mark is an employee of a government agency that designs and operates many vehicles that travel faster than the speed of sound. Boy, it sounds like he's telling us he's uh, he's doing the aliens, and he, he's just not allowed to say. Right. He's being a little vague there about, yeah. about his ultrasonic work, his supersonic work. Hmm. Um, but his work involves the aerodynamic testing and analysis of hyper, oh, hypersonic entry vehicles, most of which Will Fly have flown at other planets. Okay, he's just NASA or JPL or something. Sure, I see. And it's very easy to calculate... Uh, the speed given a shockwave. You know, if you can see the shockwave traveling behind an object, you can determine the Mach number at which it's traveling as long as you know what substance it's moving through. It doesn't need to, you don't also need atmospheric conditions and altitude at that point? Yeah, I guess you need to know, not, well, I guess you need to know some some details about the the gas, the density of the the medium it's moving through. I see. But if you, assuming it's regular Earth atmosphere right. at whatever altitude it's at. I guess that's all the way. And so looking at that sonic eagle, which has where you can see uh-huh. kind of the shock waves coming off the top and bottom of the head. He can estimate the how speed. How fast the eagle is going. He wanted to know what Mach number the U.S. Postal Service eagle is flying I at. love futurelings. And he, uh, after doing a little research online, he found out not only that this is possible, that someone had already done the math. A, a professor teaching compressible flow... Studying the logo has been able to measure the um, the angle of the shock interaction and the normal shock at the top of the beak and the oblique shock at the bottom of the beak. But just by looking at the ratio, the the angle at which the uh, shock wave is coming off the top of the eagle's head, it's a very simple trigonometric uh, calculation. So depending on which version of the logo you use, the eagle is traveling somewhere between Mach 4.67 Whoa. and 4.93. That's really, really fast. If he's going at sea level, which yes. I assume male trucks do, that right. is 3,700 miles 
per hour. An eagle has a maximum altitude of how high can an eagle fly? Mm, That's a great song title. I, yeah. Is it uh, Don Henley? Yeah. I was looking at a bald eagle swooping down over the of, Strait of Juan de Fuca yesterday, and it, it killed a seagull. I saw it snatch up seagull, oh, really? seagull entrails and left a flurry oh, of feathers. Oh, how cool. And then I saw it fly up in a tree and feed like a juvenile bald eagle, which did not have the white head yet. Yeah. Uh, kind of an awkward age eagle. But they were not very high. Right. I feel like usually fly like an eagle means fly pretty low looking for fish, whereas yeah. we assume the song means fly super high and majestically over the mesa. Let me just say here, how high can an eagle fly... We're going to get to the bottom of this. 10,000 feet. So at 10,000 feet, your mock speed is going to be different than at sea level. It will. But still, mo- yeah. that, that's still Mach 4, mock, but somewhere between Mach 4 and 5. Uh, and now we know. The Eagle on the U.S. Postal Service is traveling at almost 4,000 miles an hour. Isn't that interesting? And while we're kind of going back into the omnibus archives here, we had one note from Carson that I didn't really know. And this, two people have mentioned this recently in a, in a weird synchronicity. And I didn't know where to encode this because they have a problem with every single episode. Uh-huh. Which, is uh-huh. very, which is very omnibus. Uh-huh. Uh, in the intro to the show, we express hope that future listeners have, have, uh, have reinvented the technology necessary to decrypt our transmissions. Yes. And both people believe we are using the word incorrectly. We mean decode our transmissions, and not we say decrypt. decrypt? Them. Yes. What would you? What would? You, how would you understand that difference? Let's see. Uh, what is the difference between encrypted and encoded? Sure. Encoded means baked into, whereas encrypted means put into a, uh, into a not a, like code, but into a crypt. <laughs> Yes. Right. Well, I mean, a time capsule is in a crypt, I guess. It is. We are in a crypt. I think in cryptography, the distinction is generally, you know, uh, anything can be encoded by moving it into a different system. But encrypting it speaks to the purpose of the encoding. I see. Uh, If you're encrypting something, you're encoding it in in some kind of difficult way that will keep people from the... Decrypting it. Yeah, that will keep people from the transmissions. Like, I think it's, it's the Greek... Cryptos meaning what? Hidden, I think. Is that right? Is that what kryptonite is? Cryptology. Um, yes. So so there you go. Um, so should so, we so, change the intro? Well, by saying decrypting, we're implying that we're trying to keep someone from intercepting the show. And that might be true. Do we say decrypt or decode? We say decrypt. Oh, we do. And Carson thinks we should say decode. Like decrypt means that we, d- for some reason, we don't want people to find it for a while, and then we want somebody else to figure it out. Well, I think I think that we could mean, be true. We mean literally take it out of the crypt <laughs> where it, where we've stashed it. So we are going to put this podcast in a crypt somewhere, like m- maybe with with our bodies in our bunker in the silo. It where, is literally a crypt where you and I will die together, and I'm starving, and and we're going to have our green funeral. Uh-huh. I'm going to be, uh, you're going to be mushrooms or, or some kind of a, a topsoil silo. I can't remember. Yeah, mushrooms. And I just want to be like a bonsai tree or something. Mm-hmm. And then with us, and, and we'll be holding hands or branches or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then in between us will be... The stack of platinum albums. That contain the omnibus. Yeah. So thank you, Carson. I'm glad we could figure that out. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda Volume 10. 
Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the Omnibus.